Hey friends, this is Shadima, also known as the Type A Hippie, and this is the Type A Hippie Podcast, Chicast episode 78. And I am on with a dear friend of mine. Her name is Tara Luther. We met through Friends of Friends when I moved back to Ann Arbor in August 2016. And she was really instrumental in terms of introducing me to other people as I got connected here in Ann Arbor. And um really felt the pull, you know, as many of you know, what, how, when this podcast started that I really wanted to highlight issues. Um, as a recovery advocate, I wanted to highlight issues of people in recovery, um, the things that affect them and uh, people who are struggling with or have recovered from substance use disorder. And so it was just really a blessing um, for the divine to have allowed our paths to cross when I got here so that I could dig more into my passion um, of being of service. And so I just want to welcome you to the podcast, Taro. Thank you. So glad that you are here. I am as well. So tell us a little bit about yourself in your own words. Sure. Uh, my name's Tara, and I was born in Massachusetts, actually, kind of random. And then I lived in Brazil, actually when I was two, so I don't remember it, um, lived That's in, too bad. I Brazil know. Brazil seems like a beautiful country. Actually, I got to go back when I was 18, and it is my absolute favorite country. That's awesome. I love it. Uh, Do you speak Portuguese? I don't. It was actually my first language, you know, when you're that age, you're starting to sure. speak a little bit, uh, but I don't remember any of it, although I think it did help me pick up Spanish pretty quickly. Nice. Yeah. Cool. So, um, so that was a little fun fact about you. Um, okay. So I brought you on, you are, um, I think you're the second episode, perhaps maybe the third episode of let's double check. You are the third episode in my stories of sobriety, 10 episode arc. And so wanted to have you on and share a little bit about your story, you know, like what, it was like before what happened for you to start living a new life and what it's like now. And I'll probably interject with questions that I think listeners may have and we'll just kind of have a conversation. So the floor is yours. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> I could probably talk on and on about this because it's something I'm extremely passionate about. Um, I guess I'll just start from the top. I believe that some contributing factors to my addiction are my parents divorced when I was five and I was old enough to kind of be aware of what was going on. I, I actually knew it before they even told me, which is surprising at, at that young of an age, but you really do pick up on things. And then I was also sexually molested by a family member. And I definitely think those things, um, you know, kind of triggered my brain. I, I believe I was born with this disease that it does run in my family, um, but I definitely think those things triggered it on uh, or triggered it early on. And flash forward, you know, I think we show addictive tendencies before we even pick up our first drink or drug. And I definitely showed addictive tendencies. My mom always said that to me. Didn't know what that meant until later on. Um, sure. Yeah. Uh, so didn't really, I dabbled in drinking here and there, but I would say the first significant time I remember is when I was 14. I, I didn't realize that it took some time for alcohol to affect you. 
so I was taking shot after shot of vodka and, um, and all hit me at once. I literally had, I think 15 shots, you know, and that was my first time really drinking. So of course I got alcohol poisoning and was actually very turned off uh, to alcohol for a little while because of that experience. And uh, I would say when I, I was a straight edge kid, I got straight A's, I was a varsity soccer captain, um, you know, everything on the outside looked good. And I was always surrounded by lots of people, but I always felt so alone. It didn't matter how many people I was always around, you know, always. I was never like, I hung out with the jocks and I hung out with the burnouts and I hung out with the uncool kids and the cool kids. And, you know, I wasn't picky. Uh, I'm still to this day, I think I get, I get along with everyone. Um, so I still felt so lonely though. And I don't think I ever really felt comfortable in my own skin. So the, the appeal for me, um, although it was a horrible experience, was not feeling, uh, you know, when I, when I drink or drug. So I, I went to college uh, when I was 18, and from there I was full-blown alcoholic. I could not drink without blacking out. I didn't like blacking out, but I did like that small period of time that I was buzzed uh, before I'd black out. You know, it, it allowed me not to feel and not to care and, and you know, be uninhibited. So, um, as they say in the in our uh, literature, they say that, you know, you've arrived. And I felt like I had arrived. And I was, um, I don't know, it was the first time I ever felt what I thought was comfortable. Um, so that's, I mean, that was my college career. I lived to party. I didn't feel comfortable around people who didn't drink and party like I did. Um, I don't know how I managed to keep my grades up somewhat. I graduated actually in four years. Again, I think that's a higher power thing. Um, and my, I, you know, it was easy to think then that I was a college student. I went to Michigan State. It was a party school. You know, that I had all these, what I didn't realize at the time were excuses. And my drinking though didn't slow down and I started to get into harder drugs. Cocaine became uh, my, my love. I, that was my drug of choice. And it was the only time I didn't black out. So it was easy to justify using it. Um, so I just continued to party. It didn't slow down. One of the biggest regrets was not being there for my little sister. She was a freshman when I was a senior at Michigan State, and we would always make plans, and I'd be too messed up or, you know, hungover to to, to keep our plans. Um, and I really didn't support her at all in her first experience as a college student. I did use her as the years went on uh, for her house to party at, to bring guys over to. I was very promiscuous. Um, a lot of just horror stories, but it's, it's about the solution now. You know, it's, it's not, I've noticed that as I've continued to grow um, in my recovery, it's not so much a, a drunk log anymore as how, how amazing things have happened because of this, you know, because of recovery. Um, I'm in love with my life now. It's amazing. So kind of jumping back into my story, um, it just wasn't slowing down and my mom expressed concern. She grew up with two severely alcoholic parents who actually died from this disease. And so she was very aware of the signs and um, she had been to ACOA. So she very gently tried to, you know, suggest that I might have a problem. 
Um, and she had never. I just want to stop you, Tara, just so that everyone's on the same page. ACOA is a 12-step program that is specifically for adult children of alcoholics. Um, so there are different, you know, 12-step programs, and I will include a link um, from a, a blog post that I wrote um, with a lot of different resources. So if you are struggling or know someone who is, or you're struggling as a result of a family member that is struggling and they're not willing to do anything different, you can still get in recovery. Um, and there are programs available and there are multiple pathways um, that might work for you. So that can work for you. Um, so I just wanted to jump in there. All right, go ahead, Tara. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> sure. I forget because I live this, you know, this is such a part of my life that I forget that not everyone will understand what these acronyms are. That's right. Yeah, no, it's true. And it's all about inclusivity and, you know, bringing people in. Um, because I think one of the reasons why we are where we are in a number of different arenas, so politically, in terms of the addiction crisis, opioids, uh, which is no different than crack friends. It's the same thing. <laughs> so back in the 70s, we incarcerated. Um, and now we're realizing that is not the best way. And so if we're talking about it more, and in connection and in relationship with one another and bring, you know, do this alongside one another, I feel like we'll fare better, you know, we'll have better results, we will, um, have more people living and less people dying if we continue to talk about this and remove the stigma attached to it. So, all right, go ahead, Tara. Um, so gosh, so my, uh, my mom was the first one to express concern. Uh, even, you know, friends that I partied with that are, are, are normies, so to speak, they, they don't, um, show signs of having, uh, this disease of alcoholism or addiction. Um, they started expressing concern. Uh, my sister started expressing concern. Uh, even my father, who would who would party with me a lot, uh, definitely noticed that that my my partying and using was was taking a different kind of direction. Um, sure. Was definitely progressing. It was a progressive disease. Um, so. To get them off my back, I went to an alcohol management program, and after just two sessions, she very politely tried to explain to me that she couldn't help me, that um, she was referring me to a um, addiction treatment service, and that was, I think, the first, like, first time I'd ever really heard someone say it to me straight up that I needed, you know, addiction treatment. So I was, I was willing only to get people off my back. You know, I wanted to prove to them that I wasn't, I wasn't an alcoholic and addict. I had a job. I had, I got a job right out of college, actually. Um, still using severely, but never lost my job. I had my own apartment. I had a car. You know, all, all the outside stuff looked good still. You know, it looked, it looked really good. Um, plus, I was early 20s, you know. Like, you can't be an alcoholic if you're in your early 20s. There's no way. That's too young. <laughs> So uh, that's the lie I was telling myself. Again, you know, this, this disease is so cunning, baffling, powerful. It, it, was, it was telling me these things, and I believed it. Um, denial is incredibly powerful, and you don't even realize you're in it. So I, I did outpatient, and uh, I, I gained a lot from it, but 
again, it was just to get people off my back. And I, I did stay sober for a year. I went to meetings as suggested. Um, and, um, I, I thought, you know, Hey, I got, I got a year, my first time at this. So I got this and I met a guy <laughs> and, uh, usually when stories start that way, it's not very good. <laughs> so, uh, he he didn't understand this disease. I did tell him that I was sober. Um, and he simply said, you know, well, it's alcohol. That's your problem, right? You can do cocaine. And I was like, yeah, you know, I, I did a lot of it before. But, you know, I got this year not doing any drugs or alcohol. And I was off again. Um, within months, my life just spiraled really quickly. And a big turning point for me was I remember laying in my bed one day and waking up after, you know, binge a night of just binging on drugs and alcohol and thinking, I'm either going to kill myself today or I'm going to get help. And, you know, again, a higher power that's always been there that I just wasn't aware of at the time interjected and, and, and got me to get help. So I went to my first inpatient treatment um, for two weeks. And I, I think I was willing but not willing enough to work on the inside stuff, which is really the only way to do this thing. You know, I, I learned a lot about the disease and I did a lot of didactics and got a lot of information, but I didn't work on the deep stuff, the underlying issues. You know, the, the drugs and alcohol are just a symptom. It's, it's the, you know, that's, I call it step zero because putting down that stuff hasn't even, you've just barely begun the work. So... Um, I met a guy there, <laughs> so that wasn't very good. And I started doing, um, boxing and I loved the high. I didn't think I'd be a, a downer kind of person, even though alcohol is a downer, I would drink it with, you know, energy drinks, but I uh, fell in love with the suboxone high and was you know, soon told that heroin was even better. And then I became an IV drug user, which is something I never would have imagined myself doing. Um, so it is, I mean, this is in the span of months, you know, from, from getting uh, help. And it just spiraled so quickly for me. Um, you know, our, our disease can look very different. For some people, it progresses a little slower. For some, it's very quick. You know, I think mine was a little on the quicker end. Um, and so finally, I was willing to go to long-term inpatient treatment. Um, finally, you know, again, greater than me. You know, if it, if it were up to me, I wouldn't have gone to treatment. There was something greater than me that, that took me to long-term treatment that had been suggested that I wasn't willing to do before. And, uh, and there's when I really, truly started to work on the, the deeper issues. And, um, and actually, of course, my disease is blocking this out. But the biggest, um, it took a very traumatic event for me to become willing to do that. Uh, that doesn't have to be the case with everyone, unfortunately, or fortunately, I see it now. Uh, for me, it took a very traumatic event. Um, we were, I was living in transitional housing. Um, so that's a, uh, like a three quarter housing where, you know, you're living with other people in recovery and, um, you have curfew. So I was trying to get some drugs and get high before curfew and our drug dealer wasn't picking up. So, um, we decided to look for the shadiest looking people in Detroit and, um, 
and ended up, uh, they uh, took us to an abandoned house and they raped me. They beat my boyfriend at the time nearly to death. He's got permanent brain damage to this day because of it. Uh, they carjacked me. They stole a lot of my stuff. So it took that, you know, for me to say, wow, like I really do have a problem. Um, you know, I was one track minded that night, just seeking drugs, not thinking about what my surroundings were and, you know, these people I didn't even know, letting them into my car. And, uh, and still. And I just wanted to interject. I'm really sorry that that was your experience. Even I know when, you know, recovery people talk about, you know, certain things, some things even like uh, traumatic experiences have been helpful on their road to recovery. And I am not the divine. I don't know why things happen. And even though you were intent on finding drugs that day, you did not deserve that at all. And so I just want to acknowledge that when people, you know, violate people's bodies in that way, you know, rape or like the physical assault, it, I don't want to say it doesn't matter. I mean, it kind of just doesn't matter, you know, that what your motivation was, because that's just not how we treat people. And so sexual assault is sexual assault, whether you were drunk and high and naked or not, you know, that, that it doesn't matter. Um, and so I just want to say, I'm sorry that that was your experience. Um, even if you were looking for drugs, that is not something you deserved at all. Thank you. And that's, that's definitely something I struggled with and it took many years of work, you know, not just uh, 12 step work, but uh, therapy. And um, I went to safe house as well and got, um, you know, specific uh, treatment for it. I definitely blamed myself for a sure. long time. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of shame. people do. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, as, as messed up as it sounds now, I, I consider it a gift um, because it's what brought me here. I, I would not, I would never say that rape is a gift, you know, that just sounds nuts, but um, that is crazy. But, you know, the experiences, the things we go through and survive, you know, to get here can be used as a gift by telling others your story, perhaps you can prevent someone from going through the same thing, you know, because this could happen to anybody. Sure. Well, any, any, any of us with this disease, any of these things could happen. They're yets, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I was told that early on these yets because I had it in my mind that I wasn't an alcoholic because all these outside things look good. Well, people would tell me those are yets. You continue you know, if this disease continues to progress and you don't treat it, then those things will happen. You will lose your house. You will lose your car, which, you know, I did that night. I got carjacked. So things, things do happen if, if you don't, if you don't treat this disease, it's a, it's a very serious illness. Um, so I got treatment, a long-term treatment. I was inpatient for three months and, um, did 12-step work thoroughly. Um, I met a guy, but this time, <laughs> luckily, it ended up being uh, great. Uh, we didn't. We met in treatment, um, but we did not start dating until we were both out of treatment, and we 
talked to our sponsors about it and I think approached it in a much healthier way than I ever had before. Um, I am still with this, this great man today. Um, it is, it was definitely risky. I, uh, you know, I don't suggest dating early on because you are still discovering who you are. You don't know who you are yet. You know, I think especially until you get through the step work, um, you just don't know who's going to come out the other side. Uh, I think I happened to get very lucky and the fact that he was growing in, in his uh, program as well. Uh, I did, you know, I, I, I sponsored women. I uh, went to 12-step meetings. I, uh, I did, I followed suggestions, um, not just some of them here and there, but I followed all suggestions and I got a good three years of, of solid recovery. And I was, I was happy and full of peace and had that, you know, spiritual experience that, um, you hear about so often. And I think is, is necessary to, to stay sober. Um, however, I did make my job, my higher power without even realizing it again, you know, very cunning, baffling, powerful, sneaky, uh, this disease is. And so I, because I made my job my higher power, I, and I was actually, I was spreading myself too thin. I, I thought that when they say someone reaches out for the hand of AA, that you're always there. I thought that meant that I had to say yes to everything and everyone. And I was in grad school at the time. And, you know, all these, these great things were happening because I was in recovery, but it was also, it was too much at once on um, I, I was able to escape in other people's problems, so I didn't have to focus on me anymore. Um, so I lost my job, um, I believe, because I was acting out. Um, I think I was uh, acting out in um, addictive behaviors. I think I was doing about everything except for picking up. And uh, the scary thing is not even realizing it, just how, how sick I was getting. And um, looking back, I was miserable and I'm sure pretty miserable to be around and lost my job. I got laid off. And so I uh, relapsed after three years of, you know, mostly really great recovery. I, uh, I relapsed. It was a one night relapse. It wasn't, I'd never done that before. And luckily had, I think enough of this program in me and loved ones around me to bring me right back. And it wasn't like a super traumatic experience. I blacked out. I mean, my disease picked up right where it left off. Um, luckily, I didn't find drugs. I did seek drugs that night, um, but had been out of the game, so to speak, for so long that I, I didn't have any dealer's numbers anymore. And so I, I did, I drank and blacked out. And uh, I'm sure I had some alcohol poisoning and, you know, just felt like crap for the next few days. And but I was willing again, you know, I was very willing to throw myself back into the program and, and I did. Um, I, I started to put myself first again, you know, it's, it's kind of, it can be really confusing. There's some paradoxes, I think in AA, like you need to be selfless, but you also need to be selfish. And I think I finally started to understand like the balance between those things selfless like by sharing your story and by helping others and doing the service work but not at the detriment of yourself um so selfish because i'm willing to protect my recovery no matter what it takes um sure. so i actually i uh i found another job and and this was my higher power doing for me what i couldn't do for myself i was so miserable 
in that previous job that I had made my higher power, but I wasn't going to leave it. You know, I was financially comfortable there. I wasn't going to leave it. So um, my higher power took that and gave me an, an even better job. It's less stressful. I think it's more conducive to my recovery. Um, and I actually disclosed before I took the job that I was in recovery and I did need to continue taking my medicine, going to meetings. Um, and that was a big step for me, you know, to put that out there before accepting a job and making sure I could continue to do that. But that showed me that I'm, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to protect my recovery because without it, I will lose everything. Like that is a guarantee, whether it takes months or years, I will lose it. Um, and unfortunately, I've seen that happen with many people. I mean, people are dying. This is an epidemic. Um, I, I'm so grateful that you are doing podcasts and talking about, we need to talk more about this. You know, I, I think agree. that is one way to, to help people, to, to get the word out. I mean, there's still people that, out there that don't know this exists. That's right. Yeah. And the, the freedom and the peace that come from this, pro, from, from recovery you just can't put it into words. Um, I think you can see it in people's actions and you can see it in people. It, it's sponsoring is one of the greatest gifts of this program. Um, you, you just see people come in so broken and shameful and, and just hating themselves and they just grow and blossom into beautiful people that were always there, by the way. We're not you know, we're not bad people trying to become good. We're sick people trying to get well. And um, it's just amazing watching people blossom. And people would see that in me even before I saw it in myself, uh, including my family. You know, they would just look at me and be like, wow, there's your, like, like your soul is back. You know, I, I didn't have a soul before uh, when I was using. So, I mean, really just thoroughly throwing myself into the steps. Um, service work, but again, not at the detriment of myself. Um, so if I couldn't support someone or sponsor someone, I would give them, you know, other women's numbers, uh, really putting myself in the middle of 12 step programs, you know, just, uh, God, I, I know people everywhere I go now. And, and every time I, I walk into meetings or even walking downtown, I always see people I know. And, and it's just, it's awesome. Like I know recovery is everywhere. And um, I just feel a part of now, you know, I don't feel that loneliness like I used to. Um, it's, it's awesome. And it's just, it's such a gift. And, and definitely the key piece of this is getting connected. Um, you know, not, it's not a religious thing. It's a, a spiritual, spiritual thing. It's a spiritual solution. Um, so I'm, I'm just so grateful that I feel that now I have that in me. And I want to give that to, to everyone. We all deserve this. That's so awesome and so beautiful. Um, you know, I was going to ask you what was one thing that you thought people should know, and, I, and you answered it, is connection. And I do feel like that is missing from this conversation because there's a lot of judgment yeah. around alcoholism, addiction, substance use disorder, whatever you want to call it, there is a lot of judgment. And so people feel like I can't, you know, I can't relate to this person that is really ill or really sick, or why don't they just pick themselves up right from the bootstraps or whatever, like, yeah 
just stop drinking, you know, and it's not that easy. And I've had another recovery advocate on, um, to do two episodes actually, um, related to substance use disorder and, um, her name is Ashton Marr and she's kind of like a local celebrity. I love her. Exactly. She's amazing. And, um, she was talking, we were talking about on one episode, um, we were talking about incarceration, but we were talking about, where was I just going with this? This happens from time to time. I hear you. (laughs) Um, not the, it was something related to connection, but just, um, Oh yes. How many people are actually connected to substance use disorder? Mm -hmm. About 25% of Americans are um, connected to it in some way, shape or form. That's not a small number of people. And it's probably even higher. uh, It may be higher. Yeah. Right. Yes, exactly. Talked about and and openly and and supported and yeah. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, some people may not know also that there are people um, that may be struggling or people that are in recovery. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons I wanted to do the stories of sobriety arc, because there are people in your midst that you may not even know their lives look pretty amazing now. And you have no idea from where they came. Right. Because people in recovery, and this is another guest I had, Greg Williams, he is a um, executive producer and director of anonymous people. And that's one of the, things in that film is about, or that documentary, I should say, one of the um, basic um, premise is that people who are in 12-step programs, one of the tenets is anonymity. And so if you're not disclosing, which you don't have to disclose, um, if you're not disclosing, though, people don't realize that you have gotten better and your life looks different than it did if they hadn't, if they weren't in relationship with you prior to who you are today, you know? Uh, so there is a disconnect. Um, people oftentimes look down on people that struggle with substance use disorder. They don't understand what it actually means. And this is the, this was the point when we start to treat alcoholism, addiction, substance use disorder as a medical condition, not unlike cancer, not unlike diabetes, not unlike hypertension, Mm -hmm. the results can be very positive. So when you administer a medication, whatever that medication is, whatever the 12 steps um, activate or encourage, when, when people treat this as a disease, results are good there is the potential for healing or for recovery, if you will. And when we incarcerate our way through this disease, we don't have the same results. And we've seen this because we've done this before as a society, as American culture. Um, so it's, it's definitely something to think about and everyone has their own opinions about everything. Um, and we're certainly not here to debate. However, you know, it's clear the facts do speak for themselves um, in terms of people who identify as people with substance use disorder 
and treating this as a disease or illness compared to what it had been prior, the results do speak for themselves. So you could have an amazing life of peace and serenity like Tara has described um, if your life seems like it's in shambles right now. Um, if you feel like you are dependent on a chemical substance and your life is going down the toilet, there is some hope. And so my sincere desire is that as you listen to these episodes and you hear people speaking of their own stories, that you may be able to relate. You may be able to find resources and connect with people that can be helpful to you. And if you're a loved one, of someone who is struggling, whether they're ready to stop or not, there are resources available for you as well. And it's incredibly important that you take care of yourself. In addition, whether they decide they want to stop using and drinking or not. Right. Um, so that's really important. So Tara, thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your story. Absolutely. My pleasure. Uh, appreciate it. And let's see. So we're going to read a story from Humans of New York. Love that book. Right? It's so good. So good. Um, all right. So this is a young girl, and she says, I want to be a police. I'll find the robbers because they have handkerchiefs on their faces, I'll tell them that it's bad to steal and to never steal again. Then I'll hit them with a stick and their mom and dad will yell at them. And if they don't listen, I'll hit them with a stick again. <laughs> this is in Udipur, India, which is, so they're in India right now, which I just love the stories and the connection. All right. Our prayer at the end. I was not prepared today, friends. Such is life. All right. I honor the place within you where the entire universe resides. I honor the place within you of love, of light, of truth, of peace. I honor the place within you where when you are in that place in you and I'm in that place in me, there is only one of us. So thank you all for showing up, for listening and tuning into this episode. Thanks again, Tara, for being here. Thank you. My pleasure. And um, thank you, friends, for supporting this podcast. Um, if you feel inclined to, to support it financially, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the type A hippie. And that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash t-h-e-t-y-p-e-a-h-i-p-p-i-e. And I appreciate your love and support always. This is the Type A Hippie Podcast, GCast Episode 78. My name is Shadima. Have a gratitude-filled rest of your day. Namaste.